0: What's up, MLB Morning Coffee listeners? We have our first sponsor. Please welcome to the show, Sit, Stay, Paw. Is there a better feeling than walking through the door and seeing your dog so excited to see you? There really is nothing better than a happy, healthy dog. Sit, Stay, Paw, a Boston-based dog treat company focused on all natural, healthy ingredients, is dedicated to helping dogs live happier, healthier lives. At Sit-Stay-Paw, they treat dogs as part of the family and understand you do too. That's why they use the highest quality all-natural ingredients in each dog treat. Each recipe has been developed along board-certified veterinary nutritionists and is packed with the flavors your dog loves and the nutrition they need. Stocking stuffer ideas? Do your friends have dogs? Sit-Stay-Paw's blueberry pancake chewies are made with real blueberries full of antioxidants, fiber, and vitamins C and K the perfect stocking stuffer dip for your friendly pooch. Their carob chip chewies are a natural sweet treat your dog will love full of vitamins A, B, D, calcium, iron, magnesium, everything your dog needs. For the next four weeks, listeners can go to sitstaypaw.com. That's www.sitstaypaw.com. And on Facebook and Instagram, at sitstaypaw. And use code MLBCoffee. That's right, MLBCoffee.com for 10% off your first order take a pick throw it on the gram get your dog on the sit stay paw instagram sit stay paw go get your dog a treat now on with the show What's up, everybody? Welcome to MLB Morning Coffee here on a Wednesday morning, probably a little bit later in the afternoon if you're on the East Coast or in the Midwest. I'm Greg Moraz, the host of this program. We are brought to you by Sit, Stay, Paw. Go to sitstaypaw.com, and enter promo code MLBCoffee at checkout for 10% off of your first order. And for those of you that don't know what Sit, Stay, Paw is, it's an organic dog treat company. You heard so in our pre-roll advertisement. And I hope that you go support Sit Stay Paw. They are our only sponsor. We are going to talk a little bit about the free agent signings of yesterday, which include JT RealMuto and Tommy LaStella. But I do want to go over what happened in regards to the Hall of Fame vote because nobody got in. First time since 2013 that nobody crossed the 75% threshold. Now, I do want to correct something that I said in yesterday's show. And that is that Ryan Thibodeau, who has the Hall of Fame ballot tracker online, tracks all of the ballots that are received. That is not correct. His final totals archivally, going back to the year 2009, just are in regards to the public ballots, because a lot of the ballots that get released are private. And the reason why I want to bring that up is that it was pretty evident yesterday that when we looked at the public ballot totals that Schilling, Bonds, and Clemens – we relatively close to that 75% threshold. Well, when the actual results came out, and Thibodeau does not track the rest of those votes because the math on that has got to be pretty difficult, it came out to this. Schilling at 71.1%. Thibodeau's tracker had him at 74.5 bonds at 61.8 they had bonds over 72 percent Clemens at 61.6 they also had him at over 71 percent so the public versus the private is very different because a lot of the private vote is the vote that does not vote for guys like bonds Clemens or Schilling so that's why the totals on the public ballot seemed a lot higher than what the actual totals were going to be because I was looking at it yesterday and I said well If everything kind of holds serve for Kurt Schilling and you get a little bit of an increase with Bonds and Clemens, there's a chance that they get over the line. I didn't realize, and I guess going back and looking at a couple of the other trends, that the private ballots are the guys that are very strict in regards to how they vote. They strictly adhere to the code of character in regards to what deems a player to be a Hall of Famer. So let's go down a couple of the other vote totals because I think it's significant when we look at next year's Hall of Fame class, which will have Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz as a part of it being on the ballot for the first time. So Schilling was at 71.1%. This was his second to last year on the ballot. Bonds at 61.8%, his second to last year. Roger Clemens at 61.6%, his second to last year. The only other player to get over 50% of the vote was Scott Rowland. This was his fourth year on the ballot. He received 53%. Omar Vizquel at four years on the ballot at 49%. Billy Wagner at six years on the ballot at 46%. Todd Helton in his third year on the ballot at 49%. The only other player to get over 40% was Gary Sheffield in his seventh year. He is at 40.6%. So I think there's a chance that those top three end up getting in next year. The thing I worry about is that if none of these writers' opinions have changed in regards to how they vote over the past few years, what's to say it's going to change next year? Is there going to be an urgency to get guys that are clearly Hall of Famers into the Hall of Fame? At least that's the case with Bonds and Clements. I am of the school of thought that Kurt Schilling could go either way. Two hundred sixteen career wins, a three four six career ERA. Mike Mussina got in. With an ERA that was higher than that, I believe Mike Mussina's career ERA was 3.68, and he had about the same number of wins. It was somewhere in the 210 to 220 category. So if you go by that standard, then Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer. His numbers, based on how you compare them to Kurt Schilling, state that Schilling has a better case than Mike Mussina, And is in the Hall of Fame. So you can't have a double standard in regards to how you view the stats measured up against another guy, especially with pitchers where you don't really take defense into account in regards to how you vote. Schilling has better numbers than Mucina. And while I don't like Kurt Schilling, the numbers state that he should be in the Hall of Fame, as should the numbers of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. So how do the numbers next year for David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez compare to the first year numbers for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens? Because A-Rod missed a full year due to steroid suspension. How do they take that into account? David Ortiz's name has been linked to steroids. How do they take that into how they vote? How do they compare those two guys to Bonds and Clemens who have one more chance? Because if you hold them all the same standard, they all should get the same amount of the vote. If you vote for one of the guys, you have to vote for all four of the guys. You cannot hold each one of them to different standards. That's not how this thing works. I think the Hall of Fame process is broken. And for as much as I don't like Kurt Schilling, he actually came out with a statement yesterday that I thought was, albeit bold, not too far off the beaten track in regards to how I think players view the Hall of Fame voting process. There are two ways you can get into the Hall of Fame. One is by the Baseball Writers Association of America. That's what we're talking about. The ones that get in much later, they are from the Veterans Committee, which is comprised of former players and coaches. One group played the game at the highest level. The other did not. So here is what Kurt Schilling put out yesterday after the vote was revealed. Okay, as I'm reading through this, this is way too long to actually read, but I'm going to read you the final two paragraphs. It starts, quote, I wanted to reiterate this final point. I will not participate in the final year of voting. I am requesting to be removed from the ballot. I'll defer to the Veterans Committee and men whose opinions actually matter and who are in a position to actually judge a player. I don't think I'm a Hall of Famer, as I've often stated, but if former players think I am, then I'll accept that with honor. Again, I won't be able to thank you for your kindness and sincere interest in this process as it pertains to me. I'll be forever grateful. God bless you all again. And one more time, a final thank you for all of your efforts to help my family and I. What I read from this is that Kurt Schilling doesn't feel like the writers are in a position to judge how great a player is. He feels like that should be done by guys who actually played the game. Some may agree, some may disagree. I think he does have a point. I think Curt Schilling is being kept out because he's an unpopular guy that has some very controversial opinions and doesn't exactly put himself in the best position to be liked. But the Hall of Fame is not a popularity contest. Or rather, it shouldn't be a popularity contest. I think that baseball writers who don't vote for certain guys who meet the criteria by their statistics to be a Hall of Famer have some sort of axe to grind against these players because either they didn't give them an interview or they didn't treat the media right or what have you. The writers are supposed to vote objectively, but many of them vote subjectively. The Hall of Fame voting process is a very subjective process and it shouldn't be. And that's why I feel like Kurt Schilling put this statement out, because he feels like the decision is subjective, not objective. If we're looking at objectivity by statistics, Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame. If we're looking at objectivity by statistics, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and, heck, Todd Helton should be in the Hall of Fame. Phil Rizzuto got into the Hall of Fame on the Veterans Committee because people liked him, because he was a very popular Yankee. But he was a 270 career hitter. That's not a Hall of Famer. If Mike Mussina gets in with a three six eight career ERA, then Kurt Schilling should get in with a three point four six career ERA. And at this point, based on how pitching is changing, I don't think three hundred wins is the automatic threshold for whether or not a starting pitcher should get into the Hall of Fame or not. In fact, it's been proven over the course of the last few years that it is not the standard. The Hall of Fame actually put out a statement in response to Schilling's letter saying, quote, It is the position of the Baseball Writers Association of America that Mr. Schilling's request to remove himself from the ballot is a violation of the rules set forth by the National Baseball Hall of Fame's board of directors who have commissioned the BBWAA. To conduct the annual election, specifically the following, quote, The duty of the screening committee shall be to prepare a ballot listing in alphabetical order eligible candidates who, one, received a vote on a minimum of 5% of the ballots cast in the preceding election, or two, are eligible for the first time and are nominated by any two of the six members of the BBWAA screening committee. Mr. Schilling has fulfilled both of those requirements and should remain on the ballot for consideration by the voting body for what would be his final year on the BBWAA ballot in 2022. The Hall of Fame assigned the BBWAA to be the electorate in 1936. This association has abided by the rules for 85 years and shall continue to do so. The BBWAA urges the board to reject Mr. Schilling's request. The whole point of all of this hullabaloo is that Kurt Schilling is calling out the subjective nature of the Hall of Fame voters, which he's right. I don't like Kurt Schilling, but he's right. It's a completely subjective process. If this was an objective process, Schilling, Bonds, Clemens would have not only been in the Hall of Fame, they would have been in a while ago. But that's not how it works. And until the process changes, we're going to continue to have a broken system that does not reward the players that are supposed to be there. It's not a popularity contest. It's about what you did on the damn baseball field. And by those statistics... Clemens, Bonds, Schilling should all be in, and especially with Schilling, if you compare him to other pitchers of the recent era that have gotten into the Hall of Fame, he 100% fits the criteria. Politics be damned, and I know that you're probably like, whoa, Greg's actually saying politics be damned. Politics be damned, you put that aside, you put the guy in. Plain and simple. Now to some free agency news. The Phillies decided to re-up JT Real Muto on a five-year, $115 million deal that will take him through the end of the 2025 season. Real Muto was acquired in a trade in the 2018-19 offseason from the Miami Marlins in a trade that sent Sixto Sanchez and others down to Florida. Real Muto in his first year with the Phillies hit 25 homers and drove in 83 runs in 2019 batting 275 last year in the shortened year he had 11 home runs and drove in 32 runs while hitting 266 with a 349 on base percentage real Muto is a lifetime 278 hitter over the span of seven major league seasons six full seasons he only played 11 games with Miami in 2014. JT Real Muto was the best free agent catcher on the market, and it was the Phillies' main objective to keep him in Philadelphia, really because of the fact that they gave up so much for Real Muto, and they view him as a big part of what they're trying to do in the future. Is JT Real Muto really worth $23 million a year? I'm not so sure about that, but... He was the best catcher on the market. And when you're trying to get the best of a certain commodity, that being catcher in this case, you are going to drive up your price as more and more teams show interest in you. That's why you have an agent, somebody to negotiate all of these different offers coming in from multiple teams. And that drove the price of Real Muto up, and that's why the Phillies eventually said, "Okay, let's give him this deal, nobody's going to go over that. And sure enough, nobody did go over that, and JT Real Muto is in Philadelphia for the next five seasons. Will it translate into playoff appearances for Philly? That remains to be seen, but the Phillies got their guy on the dotted line, and that's what matters here. It may have been a hefty price, but one the Phillies were willing to pay. The Oakland A's lost a pair of infielders yesterday as both Marcus Simeon and Tommy LaStella signed contracts elsewhere. First for Simeon, he signed a one-year, $18 million deal with the Toronto Blue Jays, betting on himself that he'll be able to get a bigger contract next offseason. Simeon had a down year in 2020, hitting .223 over 53 games with seven homers and 23 RBI. His 2019 season garnered him a third-place finish in the AL MVP voting where he hit 285 with a 369 on base percentage, a career high 33 homers, and a career high 92 RBI, garnering him a third place finish in the American League MVP voting. Simeon is somebody that's a lifetime 254 hitter and has steadily improved defensively at shortstop. His best year offensively outside of the 2019 season came in 2016, where he hit 27 homers and drove in 75 runs. 2019 is the only year in Simeon's career outside of 21 games with the White Sox in 2013 where he's hit over 260. Marcus Simeon got a high average annual value from the Blue Jays, betting on himself that he's going to return to that form in 2019 and get a bigger contract in 2020. The thing that bothers me is that for somebody that is from Berkeley, California, grew up in the Bay Area and is playing for his hometown team, the A's didn't do enough to keep Simeon around. Yes, $18 million for one year is a lot of money for somebody coming off a 223 average season where he hit just seven homers in 53 games. But the Blue Jays are willing to open up their pocketbooks for pretty much anybody right now. And Simeon was the best shortstop available in this free agent market. So they figured, why not? Let's go get him. I just personally think it's shameful that the A's couldn't keep somebody around that clearly would have rather stayed there than go to Toronto. He's from the Bay Area. He's from the East Bay. I don't get why you wouldn't do everything possible to keep one of your homegrown guys around. The A's just quite simply don't pay their players to stick around long term. Now to Tommy LaStella. He got a three-year contract, terms not yet disclosed, from the San Francisco Giants. LaStella was acquired in a trade from the Angels at the deadline, and with Oakland over 27 games, he hit 289 with one homer and 11 runs batted in the value in Tommy Lestella is in somebody that can play all over the diamond, and that's why Farhan Zaidi gave out a three-year contract to him, the longest contract that he has given to anybody since he became the GM of the Giants after the 2018 regular season. I think that LaStella is a high-value signing because of his versatility. Until we know what the figures are going to be, we don't necessarily know whether or not this was a good or a bad contract, but I will say this. The Giants picked up somebody that is going to be a great fit in San Francisco. Gabe Kapler can put him all over the diamond. He very much fits the mold of what the Dodgers had in Chris Taylor and Kike Hernandez. Very much the same type of player. So a guy that I thought the A's might try and keep around. They also let walk out the door and across the bridge to San Francisco. Finally, Darren O'Day signs a one-year $2.5 million contract with the New York Yankees. He spent 2019 and 2020 with the Atlanta Braves. He was great last year in Atlanta. In 16 and a third innings, he allowed just two earned runs. He struck out 22 while walking only five. He had a 110 ERA and a 4-0 record out of the bullpen. He has a lifetime 251 ERA in 13 Major League seasons. Darren O'Day as a Submariner is somebody that is either really good or really bad depending upon his night. His last two years in Atlanta, he was fantastic combined over his two seasons. He made 27 appearances. Granted, he only pitched eight times in 2019, but he had a 125 earned run average. This is somebody that is clearly back on the upswing As he enters his late 30s, he is 38 years old. He will turn 39 next October. That's it for this edition of MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And as always, we will catch you next time. Make sure that you write a review, leave a rating, and subscribe. Helps out our metrics tremendously. Also, make sure that you go back and listen to some of our other past episodes. I know that you will sincerely enjoy them. And thanks to everybody that has listened to this show thus far. We're over 16,000 lifetime downloads. Hopefully, we'll get to 20000 sometime before the end of the month of February. Thank you to everybody that has tuned into this show. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll catch you next time.